We're talking about right view. And so far, there were three kinds of right view. The first one, to know what's profitable and what's unprofitable. The second one, to know about the nutriment that we are searching for all the time. And the third one, to see the dukkha in our five khandas. Now these are three separate ways of approaching right view. What starts from now is dependent arising, cause and effect, backward. Buddha talks about dependent arising over and over again. It's embedded in the Four Noble Truths. It's part of the, or I should say no, it is the kernel of the whole of the teaching. Cause and effect, dependent arising. And we have two different teachings on dependent arising, one worldly and one transcendental. Now, the transcendental dependent arising cannot be changed around. That just goes lineal from dukkha to enlightenment, Upanishad However, the uh, worldly dependent arising is circular. And because a, circ- a circle starts anywhere, one can start anywhere with it. Now, it is usually either started with ignorance which is usually considered to be the first step, or it starts with the last step, which is death, and goes, so to say, backward, back to ignorance. Backward just meaning anti-clockwise, which is not necessarily back, just anti-clockwise. When we start with ignorance, it goes clock in the direction of the clock. If we start with old age and death, it was anti-clockwise. So that's all the difference. Now here, in this, and the Buddha sometimes did it one way, sometimes another, sometimes he started somewhere in the middle, and always trying to show that because of one thing, the other arises, and if we can see the dukkha in any one of them, completely, profoundly, to the last depth of it. We will take steps not to have that one arise again, with which the whole chain of reaction will also not arise. One time, Ananda, the Buddha's cousin, and um, his attendant for 25 years said to the Buddha that he understood dependent arising and the Buddha said do not say so Ananda dependent arising is profound and deep it didn't mean that Ananda was in any way unintelligent and didn't understand it but what the Buddha was really referring to is that the depth of its understanding is only possible to someone who has already escaped from that chain of cause and effect. 
When one sees it from the outside in, one can understand it. While one is still enmeshed in it, one may intellectually have an inkling, but one cannot see the profundity of the depths of it so that one is actually able to step out. Sintananda at that time was not an Arahant, a fully enlightened one. The Buddha said that he could not possibly understand it completely. And at that time, the Buddha gave him another exposition of the whole of this dependent arising. Now this dependent arising reappears in the teaching continually in some manner and form. It doesn't always take the same form, but it's always easily seen that that's what it's all about. And here, this time, it starts with aging and death. And the right view which is expounded is that one should see aging and death for what it is. Inescapable dukkha if there is birth. Because what has been born has to age and die even if it only ages for one day or for one second. So that is the, the causal condition for aging and death. Now when the Buddha was still a Bodhisattva, a prince in the father's palace, he went out to see one time the city and during that trip, he saw for the first time one day an old man and the next day a sick one and the third day a dead one. All those sights had been kept away from him. And then when he saw that, when he saw old age decay and death or old age disease and death, then it occurred to him that something needs to be done. Because that kind of dukkha is inescapable for all beings, no matter on what level they are, even on level of beings of higher levels, but particularly human beings, because that's what he was. He was a human being. And those sights made him go on the search for enlightenment seeing an old man, very decrepit, and not able to walk properly, seeing a sick person lying on the sidewalk, helpless, and then seeing a dead one being carried to the cremation ground and the family lamenting and crying and grieving. Now this was enough for him who had already had many hundreds of lifetimes of practice behind them to go for the final trip. And all that is said about old age and death is that it needs to be seen for what it is, that no being escapes from it. It is impossible to escape from it and that no being likes it that it is always connected with some disability 
that it's always connected with some unpleasantness and that its cause is of course this so the next step then which is considered as right view is to see birth as the cause for dukkha and how does birth come about is said here in this particular explanation it comes about through the craving for being it is the beginning of being now this is a little diversion from the common and usually expounded way of dependent arising usually birth is just birth and that's it but here it is particularly related to being and being is related to the craving to be now obviously birth has to be connected to being and being has to come about somehow it doesn't just happen it's not an accident there's nothing in this universe that's accidental Buddha explained everything as cause and effect so because it's not accidental to be there has to be something there that makes it happen that's our craving our craving to be and that is the answer that the Buddha gives to the often asked question why are we here very simple because we want to be it couldn't be simpler and the reason we want to be is because we haven't seen dukkha we may be suffering but we haven't got an inkling that that is the way things are as long as we still have our if list around you know if only I didn't have this or I didn't have that or if only I could get this or could get that or if only I could find or go or do that long life if list that we then can hook off and say well I've done this one didn't work next one next one and then waste years of our precious lifetime going from one if to the other and none of them of course are removing our dukkha so long we haven't seen right view right view naturally has to be a profound view and not a superficial one because on the superficial level it appears as if this world had something to offer and we're going to get to that in a minute what it actually offers it offers all sorts of things doesn't it so this being this craving to be takes three different forms the Buddha said we can be on or in the karma loka which is the realm of sensual desire 
this is where we find ourselves now. That's our problem. That's where we got to because we had the sensual desire. Now, of course, the other realms, one is the form realm, the fine material realm, and the other one, the third one, is a formless realm. These are the three realms that Buddha mentions here in this connection. Also have dukkha. But it is far more subtle than ours. It's not body-generated, as we so often have dukkha. Body is making all sorts of uh, demands on us and having all sorts of unpleasantnesses. And then, of course, if we haven't seen dukkha at all, we think, well, if we could just handle that one, we'd be all right. But dukkha is there, too, because those realms are also impermanent. So our craving to be has brought us exactly to where we want it to be, exactly in the right spot. And this is something that we might actually remember and relate to our life now. We get exactly what we want. Be careful what you want. We get exactly that over and over again. Because that's what we want, is the energy we have within, and it reaches out towards that where we want to go to. So if we want to meditate properly, just willpower. If we'd like to have pleasant feelings, pleasant sensations, just use the senses. We make the choices and we get it exactly. And because our choices are so often foolish, because we are not very wise, we also get a lot of foolish results over and over and over until one day it will dawn on us that we've actually brought them about, which is the law of cause and effect, which is the law of nature which also applies to the family that we're born into. If we think that our parents didn't bring us up right, which is quite possible because our parents are also not enlightened, we choose them. And they had to deal with us then. It's not the other way around. If they choose us, and then we have to deal with them. It's the other way around. So, what we want, that's what we get. Now we want to be, obviously. If you just check inside of yourself whether you want to be, you'll find that if you have a little uh, closer look to what's going on inside, sure, what else? Well, when things go terribly wrong, then one doesn't want to be. But that's only momentary. It's a of ideas. Everybody goes through that in the, in the puberty, but uh, it disappears again. So these are the two cravings to be, the not to be or the be. And the, it arises, of course, out of our mistaken view of who we are. 
as long as we believe that we are an entity and an individual, we want to be, naturally. What else? I mean, there's nothing else to do with an entity and an individual. It's got to be. It doesn't have any choices. So with that, we have these three realms that we can choose. And as long as we only know about this one, well, that's the one we choose. And the Buddha said it wasn't such a bad idea anyway to choose this one because we've got enough dukkha here to come into a meditation retreat and sit on our behind and try to find out what's really wrong with us. <laughs> so uh, it's not a bad thing to do at all to choose this one. And um, the others, the other two, Deva and Brahma realms, having far more subtle or no form at all, having much less dukkha, very often do not uh, arouse the urgency to practice. And because the beings in those realms are also long-lived, uh, one might uh, be around for eons. Whatever that's like. I don't know what an eon is, but anyway, that's what it says. So, we have chosen, actually, chosen a, a good realm to be in because we have the opportunity here to really practice. And we also have the urgency to practice because we know very well, six, four, and ten, that's actually usually what we live. Whereas in the higher realms, lifespan can be so long, as I said, that people just think, well, I'm not people, beings, sorry. Um, think, well, you know, tomorrow or next eon or whatever they figure out. Just like when you have a month meditation course, you figure, well, the first week is down the drain anyway. I'll start Monday, you know. But if it's only a week's meditation course, you're going to have to start on the first day, right? Same thing. It's uh, no different. So this being idea that we have brings us into birth. So birth is dependent on that. And being dependent on being, there has to be something that causes being. And before we come to the craving to be, there is this clinging. And the clinging which we know in ourselves and the Buddha puts it down to four particular things that we cling to. We cling to sensual desire, we cling to views, rites and rituals, and the self-theory. He calls it the theory of the self. So, obviously, the whole thing hinges on that theory of self. Now, I think that we could rightly say that we have more than a theory of ourselves. We are convinced it's not just a theory. I mean, we're totally and utterly convinced that we are sitting here and that this is called me. And that this me is somebody who has obviously views. And since we don't like to think of ourselves as utter fools, we think, of course, we have right views about everything and anything. Whatever it is that we come in contact with, we've got a view about it. And obviously, it's got to be right. Why? Because it's mine. That's a good enough reason for it. <laughs> so the, the, the views that people have 
is this clinging aspect. And it clings to, or they cling to, a view of the world, obviously, which has included in it a self, me. So otherwise, I would have the idea that I couldn't be aware of the world if I wasn't me. But it's a totally wrong idea. And yet, everybody's got it. The idea is that I wouldn't know anything about the world if I wasn't here in this capacity of being an entity, an individual. It's only through the practice of the path, the practice of meditation and insight, calm and insight, that it is possible to come to a point in the practice where this viewpoint is totally dissolved, at least momentarily, because it no longer has any basis in fact at that time. That happens in two ways. The first way that is possible is through the higher jhanas, the higher meditative absorptions. In the fifth, sixth and seventh jhana, and already in the fourth, but the fourth is a matter on its own, let's say fifth, sixth and seventh, the formless jhanas, there's evidently nobody around. The experience is just the experience. However, it does not completely distinguish the, the, between the experience and the experiencer so that there's still that observation happening and we still don't have the impact on our psyche which the past moment would have when we actually lose momentarily this self-business, this self-notion. But in the jhanas, because in those three higher jhanas, the experience is one of a totality. It gives already the mind the necessary impetus and the necessary inkling and the necessary um, handle on recognizing what the Buddha is talking about that this idea of self is a total delusion. That's one way to get nearer to this. And the second way, of course, is through the practice of the concentration to get to the moment where the self is for one thought moment eliminated. And then one knows. Having done it once, it does not remain as a feeling, but one knows. And then one also knows something else, that one can see the world and see other people and see everything that's happening without being an entity or an individual, because everything is happening anyway. So the viewpoint that the world 
is depending upon the fact that I am a self that sees the world is refuted. So it only happens when this moment of um, great impact has been reached. So here we are faced with four clinging aspects. And the clinging aspects were the views I've already uh, mentioned. But we're clinging also very tightly to our self-delusion. Everything that we do is based upon it. Everything that we think and everything that we have any kind of connection with is based upon this me. Because we feel it. We feel me. Because we feel that, all the viewpoints that we have are colored by that feeling. And so viewpoints need to be taken with a grain of salt. They may, just may, not be totally correct, even though they're mine. They may have something wrong with them. In fact, the Buddha said they're guaranteed to have something wrong with them, but we may not be quite so sure that they have something wrong with them. But we should give them the benefit of the doubt and not cling to them tightly. As long as we cling to our viewpoints tightly, we find it very difficult to get new ones. And if we stick to the ones we've got and don't get any new ones, it's not going to be a very successful pathway. The other thing that we cling to, our essential desires, is so to say based upon this whole business of self. Because if I am really somebody, obviously I like to have it pleasant. And since I like to have it pleasant, which does not mean one should have it unpleasant. They're both extremes. Since I like to have it pleasant, I've got to use my senses in order to get it. And especially if one hasn't done the meditative absorptions, which are a pleasantness in themselves and are uh, the, the valuable substitute for all the sensual pleasure that is existing, one looks for the pleasure through the senses. The desire for sensual gratification, the first clinging that we have, now, these are not just words. We should check that out. Am I really doing that? Find out. You needn't tell anybody. You can keep it a deep, dark secret. It isn't a secret. Everybody's doing it. But you've got to notice it. It isn't that we now are totally different people from a week ago just because we've got a meditation retreat. But what can be totally different is that we notice what sort of people we are. Just noticing, becoming aware of what we're doing. It makes a whale of a difference. It's a whole difference in itself, knowing what one is doing. 
because as we know what we're doing, that we want having pleasure through the senses, whichever one of the senses we have developed mostly, or whichever one we find easiest to gratify, or whichever one gives us the greatest um, pleasure, that's the one we use most. We will see when we notice that, that it is unsatisfactory. It's sukha. Why? Because it doesn't stick around. It is come and gone in almost immediately for practically all of the senses. And because it's always come and gone, we have to go after it again. And if we haven't seen that in ourselves, we will always feel shortchanged when we're not getting it. When it's not pleasant. When we have to sit and the knees hurt. Or when there isn't the food available that I usually used to and like. Or when it's too hot. Or when it's too cold. Or when it's raining and it's sopping wet and it's muddy. I feel then short-changed because I'm not getting what I want. Because now I'm getting unpleasant sensations. Not having noticed anything about oneself, being totally oblivious to the way a human being operates, particularly oneself, one will then have dislike. Dislike of the situation, dislike of uh, somebody who may have in one's own mind created that situation, whatever it is. Dislike. And what is dislike? Cause for unhappiness, isn't it? Who is happy with dislike? Nobody. Just impossible. Or, we have of course this other option, if we don't want to start disliking, we can also ignore. Practicing indifference, which is like putting on a sort of a cover around oneself so that one doesn't notice too much because it could become unpleasant. And it actually will. There's no doubt about it. Because the pleasant sensations don't last. So what's the next thing? Probably an unpleasant one. At least it's going to be neutral. Now, if they were all neutral, we wouldn't mind too much. We could uh, handle that. But nobody is, has only neutral sensations. It's just not in the cards. It's either on, on neutral reactions. It's just pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral. It's all three. So with our essential desire and the clinging to them, these desires, for the six sense contacts, which includes the thinking, we need to become aware of the fact that that's what we're looking for and then become aware of the fact that it's totally unsatisfying because it doesn't last and has to be renewed and also create the dislike when the contact is unpleasant. So we are actually in that situation constantly having a tug of war within ourselves between the moments we like when everything is going nicely and the moments we dislike when everything is not going nicely. And then we have to quickly do something in order to change that again. And so we are busy 
whether we are out there or in here, it doesn't really matter. The mind remains busy trying to figure it out. How to get the pleasant ones to have the majority. If we had a majority vote for the pleasant ones, we'd think we'd, do, we'd be quite well established in our life. It doesn't work that way at all. Unpleasant and pleasant are constantly changing. But the main thing that we need to see is that the clinging to the pleasantness of our sensations that we get from our sensual contact is a mistaken view. It's not going to bring us what we're looking for. What we're looking for is an inner depth of contentment. And it will never bring that. On the contrary, it will bring the opposite. It will bring constant anxiety. Because the wanting is already the reaching out, which is already anxiety, trying to get something, hoping to get it, and then having got it, hoping to keep it. No contentment, no peace in that. So that is one the views, the self-theory, and the other, the fourth one which the Buddha mentions in this connection are clinging to rites and rituals. It's an interesting thing that he mentions that very often. In fact, it's one of the three fetters that are lost on the first path moment. Now, rites and rituals are not strictly only religious, although there are often very many rites and rituals connected, and sometimes the whole spiritual path is lost amongst all the rites and rituals, there are too many of them. But it isn't only that. We have rites and rituals in our own uh, Western society which are not connected with any spirituality and we believe in them and think that they are important and we actually act them out also in our daily lives. The rites and rituals which we act out in our daily lives are very often connected with the relationships with other people. We have a certain view of the other person so then we have a certain way of relating instead of just coming from the heart. This happens in many relationships. There are, in partnerships, it, it happens in teacher and student, it happens in many, many relationships. Of course, we have rites and rituals for all the important, uh, important changes that happen in one's life, like marriages and death, funerals, and uh, people get very angry. In fact, I was just fooled about such a thing where a member of the family died and an uncle and the other two wives of the brothers are angry at the widow because she didn't make the funeral the way they thought she should have. Now, if that isn't rites and rituals, I don't know what is. 
Now they're angry at the woman who's lost the husband because the funeral didn't turn out the way they should have been. And these things sound absurd, but they happen all the time. And one has certain ideas also about one's work and the people one works with and the people one deals with. One has certain viewpoints about them. They are somebody, so they have to act like somebody. The self theory again. There is a self and there is a self and these two selves have to m merge into a third self or something or other. But in the reality, there's nobody there. The whole thing is a process, but we can never um, relate to that. So we have ritualistic behavior, and we can actually see that in many of our language um, languages. For instance, the legalistic language, totally ritualistic. It sticks to a certain way of doing things. Rites and rituals stick to certain ways of doing things without any possibility of change because it is the ritual to do so. That's the only reason for it. Now, obviously, one has to comply with society, but one doesn't have to believe that rites and rituals are helpful. And that's all that that means. Clinging to them means that one is not allowing oneself to become free. It's probably the least of our worries. The greatest worry is this idea of who we are. And clinging to that with such force that we're going around and around and around in circles in this circular motion of cause and effect over and over and over. Now, this whole dependent arising is very often considered to be three lifetimes. But we can do it all in one day and one night. Because at night we die a small death. We don't know where we are. And then we come back in the morning brand new. We actually feel stronger, more energetic, because the body had a rest. And we bring with us all the rubbish that we had in our mind the previous day. And that's karma and its resultant and rebirth. Very easy from one day to the next. If anybody has ever thought about what's rebirth, how can I believe such a thing? Well, just watch it. One day, go to bed at night, wake up in the morning, and bring it all with you. It doesn't, it's not just the last day that we bring with us. We bring with us whatever we can remember. And of course, we bring our tendencies with us, which we have established over the past years. And these tendencies are then our new day. They are embedded in our new day. So the whole of this dependent arising, the circular movement, which is here explained, starting with the death and going backwards, so to say, can be seen as one day in our life. And the death part being the sleeping part. And then coming up again next morning with the birth and being, being here and being 
me again. Well, who else? I mean, I can't be you, so I've got to be me. There's no choice, is there? Well, there is, actually. There's the choice of being nobody. But most people don't want to take that choice. It doesn't sound interesting enough. Well, the Buddha said it's the only way to be, to be nobody. But we have to find that out for ourselves. And when that happens, of course, then it isn't anymore that that person has actually become nobody because that could be then the feeling of I am nobody. That's not it either. So the uh, the clinging to these four things is our superficial view of who we are and what we do. And again, I like to emphasize that in a retreat situation, this can be investigated and should be investigated in oneself. Am I having sensual desires? And the sensual desires always refer just to our six senses. That's all. What do I want? And do I promise, do I feel a promise that these sensual gratifications which I can have through seeing, hearing, tasting, touching, smelling and thinking, that they are going to be satisfying for me, that that's all I need. Do I believe that? And if I don't believe it, if I'm watching what I'm getting, I'm getting a nice, I'm seeing a nice bird, very beautiful, and then what? So I have to look for another bird, do I? I mean, there are plenty of them. I can do it all day long and always find a new bird. But maybe one gets tired of birds, so one looks for flowers. And then one gets tired of flowers and has to look for sunsets or sunrises or little little lizards or whatever one likes. But if I will notice that finally and see, well, if I can't get satisfied with the first impact of the seeing and not the second and not the third and not the fourth and not the fifth, so, what am I looking for? One has to do it. And to become imbued with that inner certainty that the senses will never do it for us. Now, that doesn't mean that we can't have pleasant impact through the senses. We can't help it. We will have it. On the human level, we get both pleasant and unpleasant. And neutral ones, plenty of neutral ones. But they're okay. We don't mind them. We don't have any objection to them. So that's practice, seeing how this works. Now, with this clinging to these four things, that is conditioned by craving. And here the Buddha does not relate to the three main cravings which we have, which are already uh, mentioned, actually, as the three main cravings are the craving to be, the craving not to be, and the sensual craving for sensual gratification. But he refers to here, to the craving through the six senses. And the craving through the six senses is occasioned and regenerated over and over again because of feeling. And now we are really getting in there a little more. Because everybody is, of course, interested in how they feel. 
And this is all very often our way of talking. Oh, I don't feel good about that. Or, um, I've seen a sticker on a car which said, um, if it feels good, it must be right. Oh, this is, this is the height of absurdity. Actually, really, it's almost criminal to say something like that and stick it on a car. So, um, we want to feel good. And all our cravings through the senses, which are the essential desires, but here the craving is then the next step from the clinging, are occasioned because of the feelings that we have. And because we want only one kind of feeling out of three, we are constantly busy trying to get it or busy being angry that we're not getting it. That isn't foolish. But we all do it. So we need to find out, am I really doing that? Am I really living like that? Everybody does. There's no exception except the enlightened ones. But when we find out that we're doing that, we have the inner urgency to do something about it. Because it is so absurd. I want one out of three feelings and everybody's got all three and I only want the one. I only want the pleasant one. Which is a total impossibility. Nobody can manage. And nobody ever has. And because I'm trying to get something, namely one out of three feelings, that and that which is impossible to get, I can never be satisfied. So why can't I change my direction and look for something entirely different? Is it impossible, as I said, to get to just have that one out of three? But because we have that direction in our mind that that's what we want obviously we have a great deal of unhappiness dislike resistance rejection um, worry anxiety when we get the other one the unpleasant one why live like that? It's totally unnecessary. If we could see that these sense contacts which we make through seeing, through hearing, and through the others, and through thinking, are so fleeting, have no solidity in them, nothing to hang on to, nothing that remains, and are only based upon our own mind convolution, then we'll see that it's totally unnecessary to live like that. Now, as I said before, and I'll say this again, the I, this one, can see only color and form, color and shape. The ear can hear only sound, 
Now these are on the two most important sense contacts. And when we see something, we put a name to it and we start liking or disliking. And the same with what we hear. And because we want the pleasant, we crave something specific. I want to hear that. Or I want to see that. Or I want to taste that. Or smell that. Or think that. So we have preconceived notions how it's supposed to be. It never is. It never is the way we thought it should be. How can anyone, anyone being direct everything outside there so that the input is exactly as one wants it? There's no way it can be done. We think of ourselves in two wrong ways. Not only do we have the self-theory, which is of course the basis for the whole misery, but on top of that, we think of ourselves as almighty, try, able to direct things the way we want them. And then if that doesn't happen, because somebody else gets in our way, of course, because they're also directing things they want them, the way they want them, then the whole thing falls apart, and we think of ourselves as a poor little nobody who can do nothing. Two extremes which are both totally wrong. Neither are we almighty, and that sounds absurd anyway, but also we are not a poor little nobody that can do nothing. It's not like that at all. We can direct our mind fruitfully. We can direct it in a way which will bring insight. Because all this, what is being said here about right view, is all, of course, directed towards insight. And insight is the goal of the practice. And calm is the means. So the um, explanations at this point are all directed towards insight. And if we want some of that in order to remove some of our dukkha, because insight is the only thing that will really remove dukkha, everything else is temporary, then we need to direct the mind fruitfully and wholesomely and also knowingly and not just let it roam. Now you know very well that meditation is impossible if we let our mind roam. There's no way we can meditate if the mind goes all over the place. Well, the same is in daily living. Allowing the mind to go from here to there and then all over the place is just as much an invitation to Dukkha as it is in meditation. No different. Allowing the mind to do what it likes means that we have a totally untrained mind which is our worst enemy. The Buddha said, an untrained mind can do more harm to us than our worst enemy. A trained mind can do more good to us than even our parents or best friends. 
And the trained mind will see that the craving through the senses is futile. We can't get it the way we want it. And it all depends anyway on the way we react in the mind to it. Because somebody might hear something and think, oh, that's terrible, making me so unhappy. And the other person might hear the same thing and might think, yeah, that's reasonable. Depends totally on the mind which is reacting to the sound that was being made, the word. The same with seeing. Somebody might see something and think, oh, this is wonderful, I must have it. And the other person might see it and think, oh, goodness, so much clutter. Just the way the mind reacts. And yet, we believe not only the sense input, but the mind's reaction to that sense input. We believe it, again, out of one simple reason, because we've got it. But that's no reason to believe it. And any meditator should know that. Because if we have been meditating and we get distracting thoughts, we know already that they're totally unbelievable. They're just coming and going. So we have this um, dependent arising here, one dependent upon the next, one caused by the other. And we should actually try it out and see whether this, as the Buddha says, because as we go on with it, and I'll go on with that tomorrow, we will see that the resultant is that none of it is desirable. Nothing will ever satisfy us. It's all constant coming and going. And in this constant, constant coming and going, we are looking for the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. Does it exist? You can't even get to the end of the rainbow. Never mind the pot of gold. It just isn't there. And yet we think if we are just a little smarter than we were last year, we are definitely going to make it. Nobody's ever made it that way. The whole dependarizing shows only one thing, to let go of each condition. So obviously, if we want to escape aging, I'll just go through that again with very briefly. If we want to escape aging and death, we have to give up birth, don't we? Whatever is born must age and die. Well, if we want to give up birth, we have to give up craving to be. If we, have, if we want to give up this craving to be, we must give up those three levels of existence that are so um, desirable, appearing, appearing to be so desirable to be here and with a, this, either this level or the other two. If we want to give that up, if we want to give up this craving to be, then we will definitely have to give up our clinging, our clinging to this person, this self give up the viewpoints we have about this person, give up the ideas and give up our desires, essential desires, 
to satisfy this person. So if we want to give that up, obviously we have to give up the craving. And if we want to give up the craving, we have to see quite clearly that the craving to satisfy our senses will never result in a real satisfaction. Continue tomorrow. If you'd like to ask any questions, please do so. Mm-hmm. When you are, uh, uh, you, you die, and you, uh, as you are, are dead, your consciousness says, gee, I, uh, I want to taste, I want to smell, I want to see, so... Mm, consciousness says, I want to be. I want to be. But I want to be dead. But I want to be... Mm. If you say, I don't want to be dead, you just say, Nirvana, you go to Nirvana. You go to what? You, you, you stay in bliss. You go to bliss. Well, if you know how. Only if, only if you'd only say that, only if you had none of these crabs. Certainly, yes. And you can do this on life, you, you can do this being alive now too, once you understand and experience the same bliss. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you can experience the bliss of Nibbana while alive. Certainly. You don't have to die for that. Buddha did. He experienced it at the age of 35. So you still got 11 years to go. <laughs> <laughs> Too quick. <laughs> so Buddha attained Nibbana at the age of 35. I said, you still have 11 years to go. Yeah. <laughs> so, and it only took the Buddha six years. He started at 29. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what else? Anything else? Yes. Well, the intel- don't knock the intellectual level down completely. Um, you have to first understand why it is the desirable thing to do. Most of mankind, as it stands today, would not even intellectually agree to that because they see it as annihilation. And annihilation is the wrong way of looking at it because what we're getting rid of is an illusion. We're not getting rid of somebody. Right? So intellectually, it's actually the first step. And with that intellectual understanding, then comes the practice in that direction. And the practice needs to have a very strong calm in it because the past moment, while it is only a moment, but it's based on the jhanas. It's a jhanic moment, different from the jhanas, but based on that concentration. So, the intellectual level is desirable first to see 
what to do, why, why to do it, what to do. And then, yes, then of course the practice. And in the practice itself, it is also necessary to have, we will come to that later as we go along, I'll come to these points, um, it is also necessary to have that deliberate intention to give up, to give oneself up. That has to be there. Without that deliberate attention, intention, nothing happens. So the intellectual part is important also to start out with. Is that clear? I I'll just wait a minute. To do what? Which part of it? The past the moment. Oh, what? Well, the Buddha said there are only few. There are a few people with little dust on their eyes. That's the inner eye. And uh, so these few people who have little dust, they will see the truth of this. They understand the truth that the, the craving to be is uh, um, not uh, helpful, that any of these conditions which come, or all of them, are not satisfying. And from that will come that understanding, okay, I'm giving myself up. Now that understanding uh, precipitates the, do, the doing of it. It is not, it's not for everybody. That answer that? <laughs> okay. Yes? The, yeah, and I remember you said the end of the practice about there's only four, four things that one needs to do. Need, there's four needs one needs. Mm. The rest of them are wants. Mm. And there were the, the, the food. This is, this is like food and the, the shelter and the clothing and medicine and it, if you if you realise that they that they're the only ones you have and the rest are uh, the mm. then that's the one. Well, that's one part of it. That's, uh, that's not all of it. The Buddha gave seventeen and a half thousand discourses. That's one of them. And he didn't give the seventeen and a half thousand because they weren't necessary. So. There's a lot of that, a lot of things that are necessary. That's one of them, certainly. To un- to distinguish between need and greed, that's necessary, certainly. That doesn't mean one gets rid of greed right away. It just means that one can distinguish. Anything else? I wouldn't put it that way. You could. I, I wouldn't put it that way. I would say like this, that the second one 
the, the feeling, right, is the automatic reaction to the sense, to, to what's happening to us. Where, you know, the, it's like an automatic reaction. Whereas the, the third one, the mental and emotional states we have, is more the um, con- conditioned reaction. We are conditioned with our tendencies and our conditions, the, the environment we have and everything that we've learned and everything that we have done has conditioned us to react in a certain way. Mm-hmm. Now, we may have, um, you know, I don't know if you have had that experience, but sometimes a certain smell that you get, it creates all of a sudden a very pleasant feeling and all of a sudden you have all this memory of where you smelled it some place in, in India in, a, in, a, in some uh, obscure bazaar. It may not even be so, but it's all coming up. Well, only you would react to that smell in that way. And you now have a very pleasant mental state uh, because of that, because of that smell, because it created all this. But, you know, for somebody else, it wouldn't create anyone to say, oh, it smells terrible, you know. Why do they have to burn all this incense? So it's our personal tendencies and uh, background which creates our mental-emotional states, whereas the feeling which comes out of a sense contact is more an automatic thing that happens. Yeah. Mm-mm. No. The sense contact is not always a sensation. The touch contact is a sensation. But the eye contact, the seeing, the seeing consciousness, the hearing consciousness, you can't really call that a sensation. It's the, it's the sense consciousness which happens. Not always sensation. So with that sense consciousness which is happening to us all the time, I mean there's something happening all the time. At the moment we've got touch contact by sitting, we have sound contact because of hearing and uh, eye contact, uh, contact because of seeing other people or whatever we are looking at and probably also thinking contact trying to figure out what's being said. So we've got all these contacts. They're not happening all at once, but they're happening in such quick uh, succession that we think all of this is happening. And so with that, feeling arises. And there's feeling arising from all of them. And if it's an overall pleasant feeling, we're contented. Then a mental, emotional state of contentment arises. And if it isn't, if it isn't a pleasant feeling, we're discontented. But we don't notice it. We just accept the fact that we're either contented or discontented or happy or unhappy or, or liking or disliking or any of that and put the blame or the praise on all those sense contacts we've made. But it's not always sensation.
No, no, between feeling and reaction. There's really nothing one can do. One can practice uh, the uh, epitome of mindfulness by just being aware of sound, by just being aware of uh, form and color, and you can do that in a retreat situation, but you can't do it in daily life. It's impossible. Because if somebody says something to you and you're only practicing sound, you just can't continue doing anything. But you can certainly stop yourself reacting. Well, it is possible, but very few people can do it. It takes an um, uh, it takes it's, it's a step to enlightenment. Yes. I think this may follow on with what Simon was talking about. When in James' last century he posed the following conundrum: If I come across a bear, across a bear, a bear yeah. yes. Am I scared because I'm running away, or am I running away because I'm scared? You know, how would you? How would you? <laughs> <laughs> Well, doesn't that sort of fit with uh, what you've been asking? Well, you try it out, does it? <laughs> <laughs> it's all yours. <laughs> Be my guest. <laughs> it's all yours. You figure it out. You tell us. conditioned of course but it isn't as as individual as our mental emotional states which arise from that because the um, you see if, if somebody stubs their toe on a on a on a stone uh, hardly anybody who doesn't get unpleasant feelings from it in fact I think everybody does Yes, the strong ones, one would probably, everybody reacts in the same way, but the mild ones, one wouldn't have an equal, equal reaction. I mean, some people, as you know very well, don't even see the flowers, never mind like them. <laughs> you know, they don't even know they're there. <laughs> so um, that is an individual thing again. And me seeing the flower, no pleasant feeling arises. But other people, seeing a flower, pleasant feeling arises. And with that pleasant feeling, then comes the reaction. And the reaction of that, uh, as we talk about mindfulness, is then the mental-emotional state which we become aware of, third phase of mindfulness, which then follows with the mind content. Then the mind content, if if it's something that one doesn't like, where there's an unpleasant feeling, and then this... uh, a dislike arises and the mind content can be hate 
uh, hateful ideas, no? and the other way around. So it's quite true that they are also conditioned, but more on the milder basis, a more level basis, where there are choices. You know, if it's a very strong sensation, you don't have a choice. That may also be a strong sensation because when I see, for example, when I see a spider, mm. I sometimes uh, I'll, uh, get fear. Another person. Uh, But that's not a strong no. thing. A spider is something very mild. <laughs> yeah. Maybe the rope. No, 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 I didn't mean that. I didn't mean that. You didn't understand me. I meant that the contact, uh -huh. the sense mm -hmm. contact, is something very strong, right? Like a, um, a putrefying, decaying body, okay. right? Mm -hmm. Now, everybody who sees that for the first mm -hmm. time and smells it, mm -hmm. usually contracts. It's really strong. Yeah. But a spider, I happen to like spiders. All of them. <laughs> so that's mild. Yeah. That's, I meant the contact to be very uh, strong or mild. Um, the reaction can be quite strong for individuals. Yes, it can be individual on like spiders or flowers or things like that. Right? <laughs> I like big spiders too. <laughs> no, but you see these big spiders, they are totally harmless. And they, they are usually the females. And they carry a pouch with eggs. And they deposit them and then later they go back. I mean, they're very interesting. Don't forget, I've lived in Australia for umpteen years, so I'm quite familiar with them. But I'm not, you know, I don't find them scary at all. Just be, you know, if you're familiar with them, they're not scary. That's the rope and snake being familiar. The familiarity. Yeah. But yes. This is conditioned to be familiar. That's a condition, sure. Yes. I'm not saying that from the time of the Mm. If besides on that the, the, the being around the pressure and that the also belongs to the yoga and the a later time freezes the body, is that the effect too? Haven't been dead lately. So no. Is there anything in the Buddhist teaching that Yeah, Tibetan Book of the Dead gives uh, long stories about it. Uh, the um, the Buddhist uh, teaching tells that at death the last thought moment is very important because it's like an arrow that shows the direction where the mind is going in other words the body dies the mind doesn't right because the mind remains individual so the last thought moment gives the direction and the karma having been made up to that moment um, brings the uh, that particular mind continuum to its proper level 
wherever that level is supposed to be. How it gets to its proper level, I'm afraid it doesn't say. And uh, in the Tibetan Book of the Dead, it is explained as going through the bardo and uh, having all sorts of horrible visions and all that type of thing, and maybe even good visions if you've been a nice person. Um, but that is not found in the in the uh, suttas. It just says that the mind continuum, uh, because it hasn't been stopped, it hasn't been broken, it continues on, and it's it contains all the karma resultants, which are vipaka. All the karma resultants are contained in that mind continuum, and it will, because of its weight, you might say, it will find its right level. And that's why it goes to the certain parent, because that is its right level. And that's one could say that a person who is very ordinary um, would be reborn very quickly, because there are many places um, where that person or that mind continuum would find its home because there are so many ordinary people. Now, if a person has been a very um, advanced sort of person, it would take much longer because of the fact that there are very few advanced people that this mind could find a home in. One could look like that. Where that mind remains in the meantime... Sorry. Don't know. Some level, yes. But where? I don't know. I can't say with any any degree of certainty. Because it's not mentioned and I myself don't know. All sorts of um, speculations, but I don't like to indulge in speculation. Oh, yes, absolutely. The mind doesn't die. Yes. Yes. One could, for instance, speculate that it exists within the uh, infinity of consciousness. One could speculate like that, but I can't say, because it isn't said by the Buddha like that. And I myself don't know. Okay? Anything else? Very interesting. Yes, Barbara. Only one thing. That's great. Yes, you're at number three. You're at number three, but then when the mind, which it will undoubtedly do unless one watches the mind carefully, then say, well, such a silly thing to do about that other person. Then you're at number four. Mm-hmm. Yes. yes. When you've developed more, it, it has more of an impact on your own psyche. Right, then it's more of a disturbance in the body. Yes. Yeah. In your mind. In mind. And the body. <laughs> but as long as the mind is judgmental and you say, ah, judgmental mind, and you're stopping it, 
there without getting any further, without developing the scenario any better, it is uh, much easier to drop it. Much easier. You know, irritation is a perfect example. To drop an irritated mind is simple. But when the irritation has already developed into dislike, which it can easily do, that's not so easy. Because then we always believe these things. Because we got irritated because of something, and then the mind says, this person is terrible. And then we believe it. So it's much easier to get rid of irritated mind than it is of uh, content of mind. And then, of course, on the fourth foundation, this is what we're at at this point, is then checking it against the teachings. And at this point, we could say, is it right view? We can, you know, remember any of this. Sorry. Is it profitable? Yes, yes, exactly. Yes, is it profitable, beneficial, wholesome, skillful? Any of these words will do. Yes, yes, that is a um, very useful. That's very useful. Now, of course, now we're refining that even more and we're getting into the dependent origination, which is also very important to know about, but we're refining this fourth foundation even more. But that's a very important one to stick to, the first one, profitable or unprofitable. So actually the mental-emotional state is the thing which arises, out of which the fourth one comes. The third one is easier to get rid of, if we can catch it. And another thing which for which the third one is extremely useful is if one checks one's mental state or emotional state and finds that one is actually irritated most of the time <laughs> or unhappy most of the time or um, uh, unsatisfied most of the time, then one sees that this is actually the cause for one's whole inner feeling. And one doesn't even have a, a um, sort of a scenario, I'm unsatisfied because of it's just that feeling inside. And then one can start dropping that and substituting with something else. So it's very useful on that level to have the third one. Right? Without having even that next step happening. Is that clear? Okay. Yes. Both. Both. Thinking is also a sense contact. All sense contacts produce feeling. And if we don't put a stop to it, we're going to go around in circles for the rest of this life and the rest of any life afterwards. No, no, neither. I didn't say either one of those. I said it's a reaction to that. Yes. You see, now any sense contact will produce feeling. And since you have to have your sense contacts, you just can't live without them. You can't walk around with your eyes closed, with your ears stuffed with cotton wool, with your nose stuffed up with cotton wool, and with your mouth taped shut. I mean, it just isn't possible and wearing maybe a, a sort of a clothing where nothing can get at you, 
this sort of thing isn't possible. So you're going to have sense contact. And you're also going to continue thinking. I mean, it would be dreadful if you didn't, right? So you're going to have all six sense contacts. And all six sense contacts will produce feeling, no matter what you do, right? Now, with that feeling, you can be very careful to notice this is an unpleasant feeling, but I'm not going to react to it. And you can try it out when you're sitting on your pillow. You get an unpleasant feeling, leg, back, neck, wherever. You get an unpleasant feeling somewhere in your body. Hmm? Do you? Do you? On the back, okay. Now you get an unpleasant feeling. Now you watch it. Now you say, aha, unpleasant feeling. This is an unpleasant feeling, but I do not have to have any reaction to that. I can just continue with my meditation without disliking this unpleasant feeling at all. Now, then you have not reacted and everything's fine. The more often we do that with anything that is a sense contact, thought, everything's fine, the more often we get to equanimity, one of the seven factors of enlightenment. No reaction. And one day when it has become sufficiently empty of self, that no reaction is automatic. There is nobody there to react, so there is no reaction. You're just doing. Is that clear? doesn't matter if you ask me again. I don't mind explaining it again because it is a, a little bit complicated. <laughs> it's quite okay. Yes. Yes. Yeah, but the thought will produce a feeling. So then the thought will give you a problem because it's a reaction to something, but the feeling which the thought produces will give you the next problem then because you're going to react to that one again. It goes round and round and round until you stop it somewhere and say, okay, that's the end of that printout. No, the thought is already the reaction to the feeling. Yeah. You see, when you had the unpleasant feeling, if you hadn't reacted to it with that discursive thinking, but said, aha, unpleasant feeling, never mind, I'll carry on with meditation, yeah. nothing would have happened. You know? So, this is where you, where you can cut in at the unpleasant feeling or also at the pleasant feeling because a pleasant feeling gives rise to greed. I want it now. Feels good. Right? But we work first with the unpleasant. It's a little easier to do. Open up a little. Yes, Joanne? Um, this general mindfulness is just to be 
That's right. Yes. Outside of the meditation, very important to stick with the mindfulness of the body. The Buddha emphasized it over and over again. Who is not mindful of the body cannot enter the deathless realm, which means Nibbana. Deathless realm is Nibbana. Um, mindfulness of the body, he actually gave pride of place. Mm, if you can, sure. And if you become practiced, you don't have to walk slowly. Because the mind's empty of other stuff. It's got to do something. The mind is not going, if it's blank, it's not useful, right? So the mind is empty of other things. So it just puts its attention on um, the body movement. And the, the mind is much faster than the body. So it can, the body can move fast and the mind is still with it. The Buddha said we can have 3,000 mind moments in the blink of an eyelid. I mean, we don't usually have that, but it's so fast. So we don't have to walk around like, um, you know, a slow motion type thing. We can walk no- or normally and watch the movement. Yes. I mean, we can do that wherever we live. We can watch the walking from house to the shop or something. But if we did it so slow motion, I mean, we'd probably create a disturbance because people would stop and stare, you know. (laughs) (laughs) Please put your attention on the breath for just a few moments. Look at yourself the way you are now without making conditions for the way you'd like to be or are going to become. Just look the way you are now and then let love and compassion arise in your heart for the person you know yourself to be. quite unconditionally, unjudgmental, no ideas how it should be, just creating and cultivating the quality of love and compassion and extending it towards yourself.
Now choose anyone in this room whom you would like to be different and just look at the person the way he or she is now and then let love and compassion from your heart reach out to that person just the way he or she is no judgment no conditions these are the way they are